0: You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org.
1: So welcome everybody. This is Meditation and Attachment Deepening Your Practice. It's May 7th, 2020. And um, this is intended as an intermediate or advanced class. And so what that means is that um, I'm going to teach in a uh, uh, detailed way. Um, my two teachers, Shinzen and Dan Brown, both teach in a detailed way. In the in Dan's tradition, it's called pointing out the great way uh, style of teaching, which is to give a lot of uh, instructions and a lot of information. What I find for myself is that neither Dan nor uh, uh, Shinzen Zen give enough instructions so that I'm actually satisfied by them. So I tend to go even further than that. Uh, I really do want you to have a good idea of what we're talking about and and, um, and uh, use it not so much as an explanation of, or a recommendation of what you should experience, but that it's like a signpost so that you can sort of see well, um, uh, the, the the forest for the trees if you will um, which is an interesting idea um, of emergence um, or co-emergence uh, which i think is an interesting topic for uh, the this exploration that we're doing in meditation um, can you see the forest for the trees which is the trees are the elements out of which the forest is made and the forest emerges from each of the trees but in each tree there is no forest that is to say that it is the entire collection of all of the trees that is the forest and uh, when we look at the experience of self of course it's co-emergent in that same way there is no self that you could find in any of the pieces of experience that create the experience of self and yet it's undeniable that we have an experience of self, and that it emerges from these pieces that we're looking at. I've been uh, touching into metta practices every other week and uh, into the, the Vipassana side, and tonight is the Vipassana night, and the meditation practice is going to be around knowledge by comprehension, which is samasana nana in Pali, the third of the insights, um, in um, in the progress of insight, the sixteen stages, which is the 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 dharma map for the Theravada model of uh, liberation. Um, one way to look at this piece is to look at. Um, the three characteristics of existence or the three marks of existence, which are anatta, anicca, and dukkha. Anatta is not self. Anicca is impermanence, and uh, dukkha is uh, most commonly translated as suffering or pain, Um, but uh, I prefer other translations. Shinzen translates it as unsatisfactoriness, and Dan, translates it as the reactivity. And I think that really, in some sense, it's the reactivity that I like the best because it is really a kind of neutral description. But you see over and over again in the Theravada texts, the description of this as pain or suffering. And it all derives from uh, in the impermanent nature of everything. Everything arises and passes away so that there's nothing that you can really count on. Um, to be there continuously and that that is the source of suffering or the pain, the tendency to, to cling to that. Um, self versus no self. So self arises based on the conditionings, uh, the, con- the, the present moment and your conditioning and that it creates a sense of duality, that there is a, sel- a sense of self which is separate from the sensing experience that the self is observing uh, yet the se- the the experience of self is the same sensing experience that the that the perception of self is observing. So there there isn't that duality that sense of duality. One of the things that's interesting to me about reflecting on these ancient teachings uh, is the uh, the state of our current science in the West, of course. Science is uh, the thing that we, if you adapt to that, is miraculous. And I often find in Western uh, Buddhist practices and and Western meditation practices, uh, you have uh, the group of people that grew up in traditional uh, religious practices where God was at the center of that, and in a belief in this metaphysical being that had was actionable in the world, and that. An introduction to science often made that seem untenable, and then that there's a period then of um, a kind of agnosticism or atheism that arises from that conflict between an old way of conceptualizing that and and attempting to integrate it into a more scientific way of looking at it, and then dropping into the the the, this movement uh, toward uh, quantum physics and And then having that sense of understanding those original descriptions of God as being a description of the quantum mechanics of of life and then beginning to understand that a lot of the descriptions of the metaphysical experiences that people had is really just a description of what is possible through quantum mechanics. And so there's a kind of long arc through the... the, the, uh, science path that leads in some ways to the same place Uh, an understanding of the the the, uh, co-emergence of all of this um, that uh, the sense of self and the sense of experience arises uh, in consciousness which awareness knows and we have this experience of conceptual reality But when we begin to pull apart conceptual reality and attempt to see clearly what it is and what it's made out of, we see that it's a series of these sensing moments of these activations in uh, the equipment that we actually inhabit. And that these connections that we feel to other people uh, and these understandings that we form in relationships to other people and these understandings of the world really have this basis in, uh, in this thing, this human condition that we are all uh, a part of, and then to learn to begin to navigate that. So knowledge by comprehension uh, is an understanding of attention and what attention can uh, take in, what the The sensing experience is consciously, and how that uh, experience creates this co emergent sense of self and world. And that uh, the belief in this uh, conceptual reality, which includes the belief in in the self, um, when we cling to it and don't acknowledge the impermanent nature of it, leads to uh, a suffering around uh, the. The this uh, uh, experience of uh, everything being impermanent. So the sense of self arises based on the experience of the present moment and if we like that sense of self and we like the the experience that we're having and then uh, because it's subject to impermanence and it begins to fade, there may be some clinging to it and, and the experience of losing it is painful. So when you look at uh, dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the second level of uh, of dukkha describes this, which is getting what you want and losing it, not being able to get what you want or putting up with things that you don't want. Um, In each moment, when we fixate on a particular pattern of sensing experience, we create a... Uh, uh, conceptual reality we fixate it in each moment of course there's a tremendous range of possibilities if, if you think about it just in a matter of fact way uh, what happens when you choose something and you don't choose something else um, and can you uh, think ahead when I was a kid Uh, um, I like to play chess and I could get good at thinking ahead of a move or two or three but when you begin to do that of course you think one move ahead there's a few possibilities but then when you think two moves ahead there's this exponential increase in the complications of that And then three moves ahead, four moves ahead, suddenly you're having to consider hundreds of possibilities depending on what could happen. And when you consider the potentiality of the present moment and the the almost unlimited possibility that's in front of us, how is it then that we tend to get into these ruts where we pick over and over again the same kind of thing? Uh, Samsara is the the poly word for that, the ruts in the row that the cartwheels fall into. So we all tend to respond to our conditioning in that way. If we could see all of the potentialities in the present moment, uh, and that each, each of those potentialities in the present moment is linked to uh, an unlimited number of potentialities in the next moment, and the same is true of the next moment, then you can see that very quickly the capacity really to understand what might happen when you choose something becomes utterly uh, beyond our capacity as human beings to be able to process that fast enough, to be able to make all that, that uh, sequence of choices in the present moment but then we can probably look back and make sense out of the choices that we make and s- assemble a narrative that describes that process that we've gone through. Largely, these choices that we make are unconscious, and we're not informed of them until we're actually in the flow of the action that's happening. But if nobody's present that that, that present moment awareness isn't there. We don't even have the wherewithal to adjust the choice that we've made. And so we find ourselves moving through these uh, moments of fixation of the potentialities that are in front of us um, into the outcomes that we then experience. And so really this process of um, uh, meditation is uh, partly to be present for as much as that we can for this process as it's happening, and then to condition the unconscious processes that are involved in the choosing of this so that we begin to choose in a skillful way, in a beneficial way, um, this rapid succession of choices, and that we move out of the unskillful means uh, um, and often the result of the conditioning that we experience. So really, part of the purpose of meditation is to be able to be as present as possible for this unfolding and then to understand the nature of the human condition so that we can move skillfully in the direction, uh, in traditional practice, of course, just to enlightenment, but I'd like to open that up a little bit more to uh, moving in the direction of what actually is meaningful uh, to us. I tend to be one of those people that thinks that householders can um, uh, become enlightened, at least the, uh, the in the Theravada model stream entry or beyond that. Um, remaining as a householder, not necessarily becoming a monastic. Um, In the West, monasticism is not well enough developed that it's an ordinary possibility. And in Asia, um, where it's quite traditional to do that, um, uh, it it doesn't, uh, or at least as I've experienced, it doesn't seem to be uh, a... uh, a path that's widely available to to, uh, those of us in the West. So understanding that everything is impermanent, that is to say it arises and passes, it arises and passes in succession, um, or that is to say our capacity to really understand the arisings and passings consciously is a series of arising and passing, arising and passing, arising and passing, and that we have this, this very narrow bandwidth for comprehending that. That the sense of self uh, is this uh, sensing experience that also arises and passes, and in base is based on the conditions of the present moment uh, and our conditioning, and so we don't really author anything or create anything or decide anything or choose anything or make anything happen from the experience of self. The spirit experience of self is simply there to know what is happening and that the unconscious conditioned processes are really the thing that de- decide all of that because it happens too fast. So think of uh, the conscious experience of self as the capacity to veto boneheaded ideas that you're about to undertake uh, or to encourage and support uh, skillful means that you're about to undertake, but that it isn't the author of the controller and it isn't always there, uh, not permanent, unchangeable, solid, even really findable, which is this... Uh, wonderful idea of uh, emergence or co-emergence the buddha used the 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 description of the chariot as a, a way of describing this he said that when the chariot was all put together you could attach horses to it and you could get on it and you could ride it and the chariotness of that collection of pieces was obvious but if you laid the pieces all out on the ground you would have a wheel or an axle or a platform or a rail or a yoke or a rein, but you wouldn't have a chariot until it was all assembled, until the emergence of chariotness out of the pieces of that. But that you could go one further. The wheelness is made out of a hub and spokes and a rail. Um, and, um, the wheelness comes from all of those things being together but that if you took one spoke from the wheel where would the wheel be in the spoke? It wouldn't be there but yet if you put that spoke with other spokes in the hub and the rail, the wheelness emerges from that and if you take the wheel and you add it to the other pieces that create chariot then the chariotness arises from that so if you look at yourself for instance you have your cells and each of the cells come together with all of the other uh, different kinds of life forms that live in you the bacteria and the flora and the, the, the tiny little mites that live in your eyelashes and all of the other kinds of inhabitants in this uh, body mind experience, and from all of those pieces emerges this, the experience of self. But if you were to pull it all apart and lay it on the ground, uh, you would not have that. You would have sinew, and intestines, and bones, and skin, and muscles, and eyeballs, and brains, and all of the other things that are there. But in each of those things, the experience that is yourself would not uh, be found there. So it's an interesting thing to also understand that as you take in the sensing experiences and you create the sense of of, uh, the world, the sense of self that arises from that, it emerges from the pieces that you assemble. Uh, And depending on what pieces you assemble, um, that experience emerges. And so we begin to understand that as human beings, we don't actually experience what's happening. We experience what it means to us in the sense that we have hierarchies of high value targets, which we tend to focus on. And in focusing on those different uh, uh, sensing activations, we create a, 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 an emergent conceptual reality out of that based on what we've paid attention to, not based on what's there. And because all of our conditioning is different and all of the hierarchies of things that we find interesting are different, and all of that is based on our conditioning, each of us is focusing on different things and assembling a different collection of mind moments out of which emerges the experience of self and world. And, The idea then in practice of meditation is to have the direct experience that that's what's actually happening. So that we can pay attention to that flow of experience and really uh, understand that uh, our attention is drawn to something and we take a snapshot of it and then it's drawn to something else and we take a snapshot of that and then in this succession of mind moments is the the pieces that we are assembling out of which will emerge our sense of what's happening. Um, So we want to use uh, meditation techniques that that will illustrate for us this directly so that we don't um, need to rely on a a concept or conceptual understanding of this, that we know this through the direct experience of practice. And so we talked about conditionality the last time, which is the paying attention to mind or what we call the sensing experience of mind, which is the thing that directs where your attention goes. But expanding on that, understanding that we have uh, conditioned responses to things in the present moment, which create uh, an attraction to some objects and an indifferent to other, op- uh, other objects and a Uh, kind of uh, aversion to other objects. And the reason that we begin to create over and over again the same kind of experience of the, the world and of ourselves is because of that process. So in the description of exploring this particular insight, we begin by noticing that everything is impermanent. And we begin by noticing the activity of mind in this process. Um, If you sit in meditation and you use a, uh, a zooming in process so that you're focusing only on a small aspect of sensing experience, it might be easier to see. There's always the choice of zooming out and zooming in. When you zoom out, it's still one object Uh, with a lot of small pieces happening and so it may be harder to see that there's a succession of one event after another, after another, after another, and that we don't really have the capacity to pay attention to more than one thing happening at a time. In Western psychology we call that selective focus. What you want to sensitize yourself to in selective focus or this process of one event following another, following another, is that when we've committed to focusing on one thing, we don't have much awareness of everything else that's happening. And so we can really create these very compelling, convincing constructions of conceptual reality because we've zoomed in on small objects, small pieces, small. Fragment uh, and bypassed awareness of everything else that's happening, and so it isn't ever included in that. So in the beginning, this practice is, uh, uh, and tonight, what we're gonna, I'm gonna try and guide you through this process of noticing that your attention is drawn to something, and then you focus on it, and everything else uh, fuzzes out. And then your attention is drawn to something else and you focus on that. And it isn't uh, uh, until the previous object is lost that you're really engaged in the next object. And depending on how interesting that is, uh, is depending on how long you will stay with it or how long it lasts. So one of the things to notice about this is that the uh, attention of, Focusing on object to object and to object is also impermanent, where it goes, stays, and then moves, that process of flowing and changing from object to object. And then the next aspect is to really pay attention that each of the aspects that you're focusing on are themselves impermanent, but they don't last either. Um, now, it may be that your attention Uh, is shorter than the duration of the arising of the object that you're focusing on, or it may be the reverse, that the object itself disappears before your attention has moved from it. And so as it fades, it will move on to the next thing. And then you'll notice that there's an arising, a middle and an end of everything. So you have this sequence of focusing on different objects and that the focus itself has an arising, a middle and an end, and also the activation of the sensing experience has an arising and a middle and an end. This is the nature of impermanence. Uh, Another aspect of this to explore is what are you choosing? And um, in some sense, if you move out of the sense of controlling self or doing self and simply uh, sit in awareness what you'll notice is this activity of focusing and collecting these bits of uh, mind moment happens whether you intend to do it or you don't intend to do it if you make no intention to do it the flow of this process happens anyway and so you become aware of the nature of self being impermanent and also not being in charge of anything that there isn't really that activity of self that controls all this, that it's just a co emergent phenomena, like all of the rest of the sensing experience is. Your attention simply engages in this process, whether you intend to do it or not, and it's pretty much an automatic process. Mm-hmm. Then you can get into this place of watching what it is that is important to me, what do I notice, and what do I not notice, and then this begins to create uh, the sense of the conditioning that you've had. I tend to uh, like to talk about this in attachment terms sometimes because in attachment, we, do, we develop a hierarchy of, of things that we want from other people and from situations around us. And we're always scanning the environment, looking for those things, and that they tend to have a much a grippier sense to them than other things that might happen even if the conditioning was bad or unskillful or unfortunate, and uh, and that still means we're directed toward these things that uh, we would be better off not to be, uh, particularly in the beginning of uh, working in this way, when that whole process has um, uh, hitherto been un- unconscious. Is that all making sense so far? <laughs> One of the uh, things about Zoom is um, the uh, the easy uh, back and forth is harder to do. So uh, if you have any questions about what I'm saying uh, or thoughts and you want to uh, participate, in, uh, just um, um, raise your hand yeah. or unmute. Yes?
2: I have a question. So when you... Um when you're observing the attention moving into something there's no prejudice against any particular type of sensory experience versus just pure thought or planning mind or you're not paying you don't you're not limiting by sensory experiences only you're just watching attention
1: right you're watching attention but the hierarchy of value is going to be demonstrated by what you choose to focus on so uh, uh, I'm not
2: sure I get that language um, okay. yeah
1: well let's say uh, one of the ways that, uh, uh, that you habitually connect uh, with people is by uh, finding problems uh, that you can then present and ask for them to solve then what will happen is that you'll be constantly scanning the environment for problems and that that will move up the list of on the hierarchy of things to pay attention to mm-hmm.
0: um,
1: but let's say that that isn't actually what your conditioning is so that you may not even notice those kinds of things um, based on that conditioning um, Let's say that proximity to, to people that you think have high social value is the thing that you're looking for and then what you're going to be doing is looking around the room and scanning and creating. Uh, 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 social hierarchies, and then pegging yourself in the social hierarchy, and and taking actions that are meant to move you in the direction of that. So, what the mind is looking at is uh, uh, signs of social status. Um, if you're very teleological, you'll be looking at uh, possessions and things and mannerisms, language. Um, And that's where the the attention will will be drawn. Um, uh, Is that making sense?
2: It does. So you're saying that there's the freedom in this meditation to both pay attention to the impermanence, you know, the movement from one thing to another, and some sorting uh, in terms of what catches my attention. Correct. Okay. Got it. I got it. Thank you.
1: Good.
0: Eric? So, if there's, like, an awareness of a hierarchy and that hierarchy, like, isn't working for us in some kind of way, um, is there any movement to change that in this practice? And if so, what is that?
1: Um well you can make a conscious evaluation of that so that would be a contemplation in some sense in what we we call insight the insight piece of practice the uh, conditioning arises and you notice the pattern of the conditioning and then uh, as you explore the insight of that you can evaluate whether or not it's uh, useful or not and then you can intentionally direct the mind Toward something else. Um, one example of that would be that you track the way that you, you self-regulate. Most of us self-regulate or, or uh, by generating thoughts that generate emotion that's, that's soothing. And if you notice, for instance, that your habit is to generate anger because it's self-soothing. Uh, but recognize the harm that the anger does when it's expressed toward other people you can suppress the thoughts that generate the anger and, and drive the mind to think uh, uh, more beneficial thoughts as a process of doing that and in doing that you begin to change the the, the unmonitored list of preferences but Also, understand that in observing what the list is um, we're simply allowing the mind to express the body mind to express that and observe what it is so that we can understand how we're conditioned currently and then we can monitor that and uh, change that conditioning Um, the Buddha described it in five levels of effort you know, one is to just tell the mind to do something else. Two is to do thought replacement. Um, uh, four is to yell at the mind louder than the mind is yelling at you. And the fifth one is annihilate the thought. Um, these habits can be quite deeply ingrained. Um, but each time you notice an anger, a thought that tends to generate anger, you suppress it. Uh, and push in uh, uh, a strategy that is emotionally regulating um, because the problem with replacing thoughts is that most of the time they're emotionally regulating and that means you're in a dysregulated state in order for that, the body-mind to generate that particular thought. And the replacement thought is going to have to be at least as emotionally regulating as the thought you're replacing or the mind won't tolerate. The the dysregulation will go back to the the conditioned way of doing it. Um, If you don't pay attention to these things, of course, you just do them automatically because you've been doing them since you learned how to do them. And most of us uh, learn most of the strategies that we use so early in life that we don't even notice uh, that that's what we're doing or we haven't in some way normalized it to understand What I mean by normalizing is to examine uh, whether we're the only ones who do it or everybody does it like that. Uh, Most of us learn the skill set that's being offered to us in our family system, and that's what we do. And uh, unless it really conflicts with somebody we want to get close to, it remains unexamined. And so if you have unskillful means and you learned it in your family system, you will continue to use unskillful means until you begin to understand that that's what you're doing and then make the effort to train the mind into something else. The good news, of course, is that you train the mind to do this in the first place, you can train it to do something else. That isn't the issue. The issue is whether or not you can see clearly what it's doing recognizing the effect of it and then intentionally shift it. But what we're talking about is a process that is beyond the simple piece of investigation through the direct experience in meditation, in in this aspect of meditation. Is that making sense? Good. So it's a process of of changing it, um, and moving it into a direction um, where it's more skillful. One of the things um, that the Buddha described were these uh, five uh, uh, tendencies of the mind. Uh, The mind is equanimous, so it's clearly observing what's happening. Uh, I think it's important to understand that we don't experience uh, what's happening directly. We experience it through this process of creating conceptual reality. So it's a reflection of these, these grabs of what's happening. All of the potentialities are in front of us and as soon as we choose one, That's what happens, and all of the rest of them fall away. And then, from that moment, from that thing that we've chosen, the next potentialities that are linked to that arise. And we could pick any of them, but as soon as we pick one, that's what happens, and all the rest of it falls away. And we move through these series of attachments, is the translation of the. In Buddhism, attachment means that you affixate or attach to a group of sensing experiences and from that, sensing experiences create conceptual reality, different from the Western psychology use of the term attachment. So understand and begin to sensitize yourself as we do the meditation technique, that that what's happening is you're just focusing on things and collecting them like a string of beads and then you're turning that string of beads, whatever you've collected into the experience that you're having. And that had you, ch- had you chosen a different set of beads from the same circumstances in front of you, the way that conceptual reality would be created would be a similar, a slight variation, or could be dramatically different. It isn't possible to say this is what's happening it's possible to say this is what's hap- what uh, this is what is happening means to me because of the way that that works, that process of picking and choosing um. <clears throat> What this also means is if you create a conceptual reality that's uncomfortable, you can just go right, you can just go back and pick different things and then create it again from the same circumstance. It also uh, affects this creation or this idea of time that we have, which is I think also important to understand. We create the experience of time uh, much in the same way that we create. Uh, conceptual reality and although it isn't possible to to change those attachments that we've made um, and and the consequences of that we can understand uh, the though that collection of experiences differently Um, uh, one of the the descriptions that uh, uh, Alexander Wendt is the author that I'm thinking of when I talk about this. Is he said we knew the totality of World War II on the day that the war ended, and so that all of the events that happened that became the final complete experience of World War II was not known until that final event. Up until then, it was a succession of events that that uh, were part of this. Uh, activity uh, and so um, particularly as we work and we begin to see these insights and to begin to work into and understand our conditioning we can begin to make sense of choices that we have made in the past that let us hear as a part uh, 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 a conditioned response to things that we may not have known otherwise and so the character of the past changes in, in light of what's happening now and in fact, in each moment of now, the the possibility for all of the past to be reordered and changed is present because the circumstances of the present moment uh, are different and and it adds to this collective experience. And while the events may not change, particularly our understanding and our our way of relating to them and what they mean can change. And so in, in moving that forward, those meanings can inform the, this moment and the next moment differently than they had before. Um, one aspect of that might be, for instance, with uh, the kind of abuse that I had when I was a child, I thought that I was permanently damaged and that that would always limit me in terms of what I could expect to uh, achieve and, and what the satisfaction I could uh, expect to find. And so it limited, in some sense, the the view of what was available to me to this narrow range of options that I would choose. And that would create this evidence that that perception was accurate when uh, it was possible then to look into the nature of the human condition and see that that natural innocence that we all have is undamaged by those kinds of events and that that natural innocence can uh, emerge and, uh, and uh, change the perception of being damaged permanently and then open up in the present moment the possibility of uh, choosing something that uh, somebody who wasn't damaged could choose, uh, recognizing in some sense that all the way through the life, uh, the experience of life where that view was in place, the options that that would have been a different choice weren't available because they couldn't be seen. But in changing that perspective and in some sense changing the meaning of the past, suddenly then in the present moment those possibilities, those potentialities open up in a way um, that they can be seen and, and chosen uh, even though uh, it's quite likely that they were always there just obscured by the view is that making sense <clears throat> so why don't we do a little meditation and i'll i'll take you through this uh, process and see how we do um what I want you to begin to understand is that you're focusing on things and you're assembling conceptual reality and that if you don't like what you've assembled, you can drop it and assemble something else because it isn't actually a reflection of what's happening. It's a reflection of what you like about or what has uh, meaning to you or what you're attracted to in the moment. And that these things are really quite fluid and, when you, and you can really uh, make some fantastic constructions Based on what's happening, uh, it would be quite different from what other people are constructing, and that you should get into this place with yourself uh, that uh, be curious about the way that you construct things, but also be curious about how the people around you construct them, uh, and uh, and find people that are really willing to tell you about how they're constructing uh, self and world. Uh, because it opens this road to this this really wonderful intimacy about, uh, about experience. And it's so revealing. If you can get somebody to really tell you how they're creating self and world, you have a whole way into understanding the effects of the, the conditioning that they experience. And if you're willing to reveal that about yourself to someone else, then you're really willing to show them the effects of the conditioning that you have, and you can really know each other in a way that if you don't allow that, you can't know each other. Um, and if we go into this idea of entanglement, and uh, that is to say who is interesting to us and who we're drawn to, our, con- our conditioning creates this possibility to mesh with somebody else to really understand them. Um, in um, attachment terms, you walk into a room and you scan the room and you can see uh, by who glows to you by who's attractive to you somebody who's had similar conditioning to you and that that's the thing that draws them uh, draws you to them and that this is this unconscious uh, uh, process of in- interpreting the experience of the present moment and understanding that um, your, you can add conditioning, which, of course, changes the whole formula. Each time you add uh, conditioning, the whole balance, the whole formula changes. And so you can move from, from being simply drawn to the same uh, con, you know, early conditioning experiences that you had to something entirely different. And it have real deep resonance and meaning to you. And that you have real agency in doing that if you can track these things. And you can begin to see how you're assembling the world. really, it's is as simple as picking something else to focus on. And then in that collection of mind moments that you make, the conceptual reality will be different because you've focused on different things in the same uh, experiences as it's unfolding. And so you have real agency in this. You're not you don't have to be stuck in samsara in that sense you don't have to keep recreating the world based on your early conditioning um, you can create it in a different way and as you learn uh, what what uh, is skillful and what has meaning you can move in these directions of real meaning in life and 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 it doesn't seem that difference in um, in terms of the conscious experience of self because if you condition that perceptual database then you're just choosing differently and it really comes down to this tiny little thing of you're just choosing in the environment of the present moment different things to focus on and because you've collected different bits of information the creation that you make out of that is uh, different and it can be very different uh, than what you're used to Is there like a duration, George, like
0: sort of an amount of time that you're supposed to be focusing on these things?
1: Well, I I did it two ways in the meditation. One is where you restrict the movement of mind for the the total rising and passing of the sense experience. Right. Adding the complication of that. Right. Of just mind doing it.
0: Okay, so letting it come and go.
1: Right. Honestly, right. Um, so in, in, you know, in my childhood experience, kindness was a, was rare. And so it became very high value in childhood experiences where kindness is ordinary. It has ordinary value. Um, I think that it's probably better to, to live in an environment where kindness is ordinary rather than something that's extraordinary. Uh, And so, uh, in adjusting the meaning of kindness, um, uh, what I'm trying to say here is if a kindness is this extraordinary experience, and you enter an environment where kindness is over is ordinary. Then you're overwhelmed by the experience of it, and it becomes something that that becomes difficult to be with. Uh-huh. So you may find yourself withdrawing from it because it it creates an overwhelming experience. Positive experiences can be overwhelming. Negative experiences can be overwhelming. Whereas if it was an ordinary experience and you went into an environment where there was a lot of it, it would just be the normal way of being in the world. And so you want to begin to notice things like that. Uh, If cruelty were something that was ordinary in, in the world that you grew up in with, then you wouldn't withdraw from an environment that was filled with cruelty. Whereas if it was an extraordinary experience, then when you entered an environment where cruelty was ordinary, you would withdraw from that because it wasn't something that you, you could tolerate. So uh, these are the kinds of things that you can begin to do in terms of conditioning, and then you're just doing it rather than having to think about it from the, the perspective of self.
0: Okay. But as far as the a duration of sort of You should just let it kind of arise and pass on its own or sort of?
1: Well, in the meditation where you're exploring to see what you do, you just want to watch what you do without interfering. And then if you want to attempt to change conditioning, you need to monitor, you need to direct it. Okay. So the reason I did the technique the way that I did was so that you could see that you can direct it and you can also not direct it.
0: Um, so this is all on, in the context of while meditating, I guess is is
1: well, there's the formal practice where you 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 train yourself to do this and then there's the practice in life
0: all right. I, I was leaning more towards the the practice of life, I think
1: in the practice in life, you want to really be guarded in the senses and very directive in what you allow in. And in the formal practice, you want to get a sense of what it is that you're you're normally drawn to, without interfering. Okay, thanks, George. So Eric. Yeah. So I
0: think, um, a thing that came up for me, and maybe it's just because it's it's new to me, is that when you introduce the like the element of beginning, middle, and end in the formal practice, right? Um, I found myself becoming concerned, maybe concerned is a strong word, but like that, like my noting of beginning and middle of the end and end was was exerting some sort of like undue influence right. on the quality of the present moment.
1: And um, I guess and that's, maybe that's that that, probably was, true in the beginning because your skill at doing it isn't developed enough to not interfere. But the more that you practice, the more skill you'll get and the less interference there'll be. Um, Moving from three-point to seven-point is a huge jump in dexterity, right? And then the zooming out and zooming in on a gap, which may or may not be there, is also uh, something that requires an extraordinary amount of dexterity. But what I wanted to, to have... Uh, you the, have the experience of is that that's the level you need to be able to to really be able to monitor in order to know what you're doing. You're in a, a, a an experience a bird chirps. Your attention is there, and then it's back. Um, you know uh, something happens. You don't know what it is, and the mind just zooms out and and takes everything in to try and figure it out, and then zooms in. Mm. Uh, you, this is the, the process that happens all day long, and it's how you it's, you s- select things, and so what I want you to really uh, develop is a strong sense of what, what's happening, so you can be present and watch it happen, and then watch how you assemble things, uh, rather than getting pulled into the self-experience and think that you are doing something, and you know what's happening, and you lose the sense that this is just the, the flow of sensing experience, and the creation in each moment of that experience. So, in the beginning, of course, you, it's hard to do, where you can't do it because you don't have this, the 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 dexterity and the skill to do it. But the but these are not uh, 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 ultimately, in the scale of things, that difficult to do, and it doesn't take that long to be able to develop the skill to be able to do it. Um, I think that also should be uh, reinforced, uh, really a, a few weeks or a few months of practice, and you'll be able to do this easily, uh, even though uh, you haven't tried to do it before, it may seem daunting. Good enough?
2: Just in, in relation to that, could I just ask something uh, about that about that skill level? Yeah. Um and addiction. What if you've made a bit of progress and then you relapse with an addiction and you of course your mind goes back into whatever you're addicted to and you're obsessed and all that stuff? And or just in general, the process of making a bit of progress and then having a relapse and then you know, where where does that where do you arrive at with your practice after that? Are you oh. what,
1: If we look at addiction as uh, a auto-regulation strategy, then depending on what it is, whether it's substances or process addictions, or most of the time it's a combination of the two, what begins to happen is, um, say there's a period of abstinence and then Uh, something happens which creates an emotional event that needs to be regulated and the mind is drawn to to lapsing um, because that's the strategy that's linked to regulating that level of distress, that if there isn't an intervention in time um, to regulate that experience, then there'll be a lapse because the body-mind has to regulate. But what happens when you lapse is that it brings on often shame and guilt and regret, also big intense emotions that need to be regulated because that intention to stay abstinence is lost. And in addition to the underlying experience that originally caused the need to use, there's this new heaping of difficult experience that needs to be regulated. And that often becomes overwhelming and quickly pushes you back into another lapse because you have to regulate that, which then dumps another uh, heaping load of difficult experience on top. And then all of a sudden, you're using at the same rate that you used before because um, that accumulative uh, emotional dysregulation uh, needs to be handled. Uh, The body-mind really doesn't allow you to, to be dysregulated for too long then what you need to do is turn to a strategy that isn't uh, one of the addictive strategies to regulate and see if you can come back into regulation. As soon as you can come back into regulation, then the, the, the mind driving you toward addiction, that period is over, and then you have another opportunity to try and replace the addictive strategies with beneficial emotional regulation strategies. Um, that tends to be the cycle around addiction. Addiction is an avoidant strategy. Uh, Even the process addictions are avoidant strategies, which means that there's an underlying uh, fundamental problem with trusting other people to help regulate you and uh, preferring to rely on a non-human entity that that has a regulatory quality. That's why major painkillers are are popular. So really, the idea is if that's happening, to move as quickly as you can to people who will help you regulate until you come come back enough into balance that that you don't have that compulsion. That compulsion to use you could describe as a a mandatory need to emotionally regulate. is that helpful?
2: Yeah, thanks.
1: Yeah. Um, it is other people and the the ability to, to form a network of supportive relationships, which is pretty much the only path out of addiction. And then that also puts you in, in, in a confrontation with the way that you've been conditioned to form relationships. And anybody who uses... Is going to have a fairly uh, restricted capacity to form regulating relationships. That's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to come out of it. Um, but that's really, and I think that you know, you have any uh, fellowship that is uh, willing to help is a good idea because. Um, people are the way out. And if you, if you don't have a place to go where, the, where the, they'll accept you with the, the, the current conditions, uh, you, it's very difficult to make any progress.
0: You mean, just like ask for help.
1: <laughs> yes, a- ask for help. Um, but it's a specific kind of help. But It's, a, it's allowing uh, people to emotionally regulate you. That's the, the key piece. So, you need to make yourself vulnerable to them. be willing to. right yeah. Allow that empathetic connection and that that capacity to receive uh, care. Um, I think of addiction as an an, an an attachment disturbance. so if you're you're able to really look at the attachment conditioning around that, you'll see. Uh, where the deficits are, and it's easier to uh, attend to them then, and you can see what you're looking
0: at. I I think it was Josh Quarter. I think I heard him say uh, something about uh, addicts really—they um, get as much reward as from um, finding out they're going to get the drugs um, or whatever the addiction is, right. as much as actually using the drugs or, 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 you know, acting out in the process. Have you heard of that before?
1: Well, or? You're, ch- you're chasing chemicals, right? right? Yeah. If you're using alcohol or uppers or stimulants, you're chasing dopamine. If you're using opioids, you're chasing endorphins. If you use sex addiction or those kinds of things, you're, you're chasing oxytocin. And the idea that you're going to get it uh, gives you that blast ahead of time from from actually getting it.
0: Right. So you know.
1: Yeah. So crazy. for instance, uh, the first time I had a non-alcoholic beer, my whole body went, "It's coming! It's coming! It's coming!" <laughs> and then ten minutes later, it was going, "Where is it? Where is it?"
0: <laughs> Did you feel like you felt that? Yeah, you felt like
1: coming. This is so distressing.
0: (laughs) So the next time you had one, it was just like nothing. it
1: was just like drinking a coke, right? But that first time, it was like
0: yeah, I, 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 yeah, I can relate to that feeling of like I remember, you know, like just when the dealer finally called back, you know,
1: that was like, yeah, that's a blast.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: But what you wanna do is get that same blast from a person.
0: Right, so like knowing like, okay, my sponsor is gonna, you know, he answered the phone and he's gonna meet me, you know. like. I'm gonna like that. see
1: somebody I love and they're gonna delight in me and you get that total blast from that, that's,
0: that's the idea. But there has to be that trust, right, that...
1: Yeah, epistemic trust is the base yeah. for that. Epistemic trust is, you know, uh, you believe that they're going to tell you the truth and that what they tell you is meant to be helpful to you. And if you believe that about somebody, then you're willing to learn from them. You're willing to be engaged in in a dialogue that can actually change uh, the experience that you have of being alive. And if you don't believe that, you reject everything whether it's, you, there, there isn't a good way to evaluate whether it's useful or not, because you don't take any of it. Um, and so, one of the things that happens to addicts, of course, is that that epistemic trust is shattered, really, uh, in puberty, if not before, and so it's very hard for them to take in information that would be helpful to them.
2: Uh, but you know, um- George, this is where I find this meditation very helpful too, because like you've got a certain program going about you know if they're you know interested in you, they're gonna hurt you, right? So that was my story, and um, and people are not to be trusted, and everybody's going, you gotta take a risk, you gotta you know you gotta jump in, you gotta try, and but um, if you have (laughs) that, it's like whatever. Anyway, so if you feel like, at least I have this clarity to know that I'm choosing not to allow another human being to do what other human beings are born to do, which is help us regulate, right? right? If if I'm making that choice, then I can unmake that choice. Correct. And so I kind of like talk my way through that a little bit at a time, like just a little bit at a time.
1: So... One of the things about insecurely attached people is they rush in and they overcommit and they, they over-entrust without validating whether the person is trustworthy or not. Insecure people don't tend to do that. They go, well, I like you and you're interesting to me. Let's see how it goes. And they give you a little piece of trust to hold on to. And, and then they see how you do with it. And if you do well enough, they give you a little bit more um, so that they're not, ever putting themselves in a position of being harmed by the other person because they're evaluating all the way along whether this is a safe person to get close to and whether this is a safe person to entrust. Uh, And I think that that's an an important difference because what tends to be um, self-fulfilling is if you entrust somebody who isn't trustworthy and then they demonstrate that they're not trustworthy and that that reinforces the idea that nobody's trustworthy. Um, so, that but of course, that. if you can't emotionally regulate yourself, you can't tolerate the abandonment uh, experience of not rushing in. And so, in order to quell the abandonment experience, you rush in. Um, and so, uh, this ability to learn to regulate yourself, and then also understand that you need people to regulate you, is is this, uh, and then. You begin to discern who you're going to uh, uh, develop into these relationships that take so much time, energy, and resources. So, you actually pick good people for that. Eric? Yeah.
0: Do you have any like practical guideposts to recognize the process of re- rushing in? Because, you know, my experience is that like I look around and I'm a frog and the water's boiling.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Jump, jump. (laughs) Um, You don't need that many people, first off. Uh, If you want to have an A, you can have an A. An A person is somebody that that you see and take care of in person, daily or every other day. Lots of time, energy, and resources for that. And the other thing about an A is that the maintaining the, the relationship uh, takes precedence over your own uh, exploration. A B relationship is somebody you say, say, weekly or biweekly in, in person, and um, you tell everything to an A and a B, but it, with a B relationship, your personal exploration takes precedence over the needs of their relationship. And then Cs and Ds, people that you see frequently and make plans to see but you don't necessarily tell everything to and are not in your inner circle and then everybody else but you need to be tending the garden and you need to be tending the garden the whole time because everything is impermanent and even if you have good A's and B's you're not always going to have the same ones and so you need to tend to the C's to see who might be a good bet, and be slowly developing them into the potential for a closer friendship Uh, so that you can elevate them and try them out as a B uh, or an A if you want. And that this is a lifelong activity that you have to be constantly engaged in in order for that to happen.
0: That's the part that I struggle with, really, like the the not feeling automatically betrayed the first time that they do, you know, that C (laughs) person I'm testing that's something that I feel like is, you know, exactly know, a betrayal, you know.
1: Um, so you don't tell people everything. You don't tell them too much in the beginning. You evaluate whether or not they're reliable. That's the first thing. Okay. They have to be really reliable. And if they're not, they're never really going to be promoted above a seat. Unreliable people can be great Cs, but they're terrible Bs and As, right? I guess my
0: my like, what do I co- think is reliable is maybe different though to what like a normal person finds to be reliable. You know,
1: well, a reliable person is something who does what they say they're going to do.
0: That's it. Is That's that it. easy?
1: So, and if they don't do it, always they they tell you why they're not going to do it. And they generally tell you ahead of time so that you can make another arrangement.
0: Okay.
1: But they, they need to only, they need to tell you what they're going to do and then they need to do it. And they need to do it so reliably that you don't worry about whether they're going to do it or not. I that should write this really down. <laughs> um, if you know, with a reliable friend, I'll meet you at this restaurant in three weeks after the pandemic, maybe. And, um, you just show up at the restaurant three weeks later, and there they are because they're reliable. You don't think about it. it. It's so reliable, in fact, you don't even need to call them to make sure that they're coming because they just always show up. Right. Now, for insecure people, this tends to be boring in the beginning <laughs> because understand the high that you get. You don't know whether they're gonna come. You're totally anxious. You're totally ramping yourself up about how enraged you're gonna be and what you're gonna to say to them if they don't show up. And then they walk through the door and you get this blast of dopamine that is just mind shattering. It feels tremendous. Um, As You don't insecure. get that from somebody who always shows up because you just expect them to walk through the door. And so the volatility of insecure relationships people often understand as being intense and um, love and all the rest of the stuff that we associate with that kind of volatility. But actually, it's very hard to get anything done. So you pull all of the energy out of what would be your exploration energy to try and balance and maintain the relationship. And then the deficit, that sense of deprivation that comes from not exploring your demand of your partner. To satisfy it, they can't because you have to get that from your own exploration. But if we're too afraid to explore, those kinds of volatile relationships make total sense because they can take our attention away from exploration and captivate it so that we don't notice that the thing actually that we're not doing is pursuing things that are really meaningful. We are you know, way over time. So um, oh, just sorry. stop here. Fascinating. Thank you, George. I, missed you, George. Um, <laughs> I did want to tell you that if you're interested in this kind of thing, I'm doing a level one in a series of day We did the last one, uh, last Saturday, and we have two more uh, this Saturday and the following Saturday. But if you didn't come to the first one, you can pick up the recording and just come and we'll spend all day Saturday on this and, all day the following Saturday. And then the third Saturday, uh, it'll be focused on the dynamics of collaborative relationships. And so we can really get into this topic then. And then also, if you want to do a deep dive into this, I have a level two training starting on May 27th, which is a deep dive into the attachment material and and the the repairs and uh, the meditation investigations around that. Um, I want to say that we have decided not to do the residential retreat in July this year because of the the pandemic. Um, depending on uh, how the uh, we we have a stay at order in California that if we were to do the retreat, we would have to violate currently, which we don't think we should do. And um, if they do go into a phase three uh, um, opening up uh, then we could uh, offer the retreat without violating the order, but that probably won't be until September, so we'll let you know about that. And then we do have on the calendar uh, a meditation uh, trip to, to Myanmar in December, but Myanmar is currently closed, so foreigners can't go there, and also all of the monasteries are closed to foreigners, and so we've also taken that off uh, the books. Um, if it does open up um, and uh, we can fly there and the monasteries reopen we and we'll take uh, foreigners and we can uh, uh, reschedule the retreat there, then we might consider doing it. But I'm going to guess that that's probably not going to happen. So both of those are coming off the table. Um, this, uh, class is offered on a Donna basis. Donna is a poly word for generosity. And so I offer the, offer the teachings to you. And, and then, uh, we do have some, uh, um, hope that you'll, uh, support us, myself and also metagroup through donations. If you go to the website, there's a link to make donations on the same page that has the information about this class. And, uh, And then we'll see you uh, next Thursday and uh, we'll uh, focus on uh, meditation, uh, meta practice for friends and family uh, next time. Thank you.